Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Our first email comes in from Greg. Greg writes in and says, Hi, Noah. If it enjoyed your viewpoints, opinions, and recommendations. This week, I was asked for a recommendation on home accounting software. I think you've made some open source recommendations in the past, but I can't quite remember or find a list of recommended applications on your site. Maybe I'm just not looking in the right place. Thanks, Greg. So I have used and tried and recommended a number of different open source uh, accounting software uh, throughout the years. Probably the go-to, uh, I guess, standard is GNU Cash. That is the money management um Application that comes up a lot when you're looking for free and open source applications to manage your money. Now, if what you're trying to do is mimic what is available to you in your bank account and essentially have an electronic check register with some additional features and the ability to back up that information and track it electronically, then GNU Cash is a really great way to go. And you can learn more at GNUcash.org. Now, when uh, probably around the time that GNU Cash first came out or shortly after that, uh, I had been using it. Um, to, to, to keep track of my, my finances. And when you're comparing it to like, let's say Quicken from the early two thousands or late nineties, checkbook, checkbook style register transaction, um, and then generating reports and such, uh, it works great. What I didn't like about GNU cash is it didn't really allow me to do anything that my online banking didn't already give me. Right, I can log into my online bank account and see where the money went in and then watch all the transactions go out or save or whatever. And then I can generate reports and all of that from my online bank account. So from that perspective, it didn't really offer me a whole lot in the way of, of, of a benefit. And then on top of that, really what I was looking for with money management software is a way to manage my money, not just track what I've already spent. Again, the bank already does that for me. So. The service that I use is really not an application. It's actually a service. The service that I use is every dollar and you can learn more at every dollar.com. Now, what, what I like about the every dollar platform is it is designed from the premise that before you ever spend a dollar or take a dollar in that you create and plan on purpose on paper what you're going to do with your money. Now, if you've heard of Dave Ramsey or read any of his books, this is uh, this is put out by his organization. So they they started uh, with kind of a, uh, I think it was originally called the Gazelle Budgeting Tool. And it was designed to kind of help people wrap their mind around how to practically implement um, proper money management. Well, every dollar takes that to a service. It doesn't cost anything to get started. You can sign up for free. You can use the account for free forever. Um, the only uh, paid feature is there's like an every dollar plus or something like that. And what that gets you is a direct tie to your bank account. And so you have the opportunity then to tie every dollar to your bank account. And all of those transactions will automatically sync over uh, into your money management or budgeting app. 
the again the thing that makes it stand out is this you log into every dollar and first of all the ui is really great but then on top of that it allows you to say hey i'm going to get you know let's say my paycheck is a hundred dollars and i get a hundred dollars from my company every two weeks and so i can enter in that two hundred dollars um for my monthly income, and then I can go down straight and breaking it out and say, okay, I'm going to pay my cell phone bill, I'm going to pay the internet, I'm going to probably not with a job that pays you $100, right? But the idea is you plan all of that ahead of time, then as that the month unfolds, you're tracking it in real time. When you spend money on something, you log into the app and you place that transaction in there, and you have to assign it under a budget category. So for example, if you budgeted, let's say $250 to go out to eat, and that's your eating out money for the month. And every time you go out to eat, you would add a transaction or if you have every dollar plus it does that for you, uh, you drag that into the category of eating out and thereby you can keep track and make sure that you're not spending any more money than you take in. So if I was looking for software or well, actually this is the software that I use to manage my budget and manage my money. I don't use GNU cash anymore. It's entirely been replaced with every dollar. Um, well, I should say there's a twofold answer. It's been replaced with every dollar in a combination with the existing tools that my bank gives me to track all of the, you know, statements and, and so on and so forth. You know, 10, 15 years ago, even 20 years ago, when the bank were still mailing statements and I was checking, it was really nice to have a piece of software to square that with, to be able to look at the statement and say, oh, yeah, that's all correct. That also is what I understand. And then because it's in software, I could generate reports and stuff like that. These days, that's not so much necessary. First of all, my statement shows up. I can log in online. I can pull it down as a PDF. I can export all of the transactions as a CSV and import that into whatever software I need to do whatever it is I'm trying to do. Um, so I, if you can be a little bit more specific on what specifically you're trying to get out of a money management app, maybe I could give you a different recommendation. But if if your goal is to sit down, use a piece of software to manage your money better, every dollar is definitely the way to do that. You can learn more at everydollar.com. I will also give a plug for uh, K-My-Money, which is the KDE's project uh, or the KDE's uh, the a software put out by the KDE project for managing money. Now, the UI is substantially better um, than GNU Cash, but again, it's it's kind of along that lines of you add your banks, you add your accounts, you log transactions, and then you're essentially tracking what you've done. It's not so much that you're planning or managing money so much as it is you're tracking what your bank transactions are. And so if if your goal is to do that, then check out KMI Money or GNU Cash. If your goal is to really get a handle on your finances, then I would I would check out every dollar. Our second email comes in. Uh, we don't have a oh, Charlie. Charlie writes in and says could you please explain the steps in setting up a VPS server, a peer tube server, and using Activity Federation? And so um, let me start by this. So a VPS server essentially is you're renting a server from a company. A VPS stands for Virtual Private Server. And so the idea is as virtualization has taken off, companies were able to purchase a single server, virtualize it with maybe 10 or 15 virtual servers, and then rent those virtual servers out to a user for a monthly fee. This is how DigitalOcean and Linode and um, Vulture and all of the other VPSs, this is how they work. And so how do you uh, set up a VPS? Well, it's very simple. You can go to DigitalOcean.com or you can go to Linode.com or you can go to Vulture.com and you can pick what uh, what 
specifications you want for a virtual server. Now, there are some oddball choices that you can use as well. DigitalOcean, I think most of their droplets or their VPSs start at $5 per month. Uh, if you need to get the cost down even more, you can go to something like OVH. OVH is a VPS provider and a physical server uh, hosting provider that is subsidized by the Canadian government. And so their VPSs start at like $2 a month. Um, and I've had great luck. We have some actual production services that we use at AltaSpeed Technologies that are running on OVH. Never had an issue with them. So um, very great company to work with. I, at the beginning, kind of questioned how it was going to work uh, with a, a company being subsidized by the Canadian government. But so far, it's been really great. Uh, so setting up a server is really more a function of picking out your specifications. Now, how do you pick out specifications? Well, you have to look at what your workload is. So in this particular case, I'm going to assume that it's a peer tube server. What would I look for in a peer tube server? Well, I would look for, first and foremost, a lot of disk space. If I'm uploading videos and I'm going to store them, on a peer tube server and then potentially federate them around or cache content from other peer tube instances and play them on my on my instance uh, disk space is going to be of uh, of of critical importance to me followed very closely by networking um, because you're going to stream all of that content if you share a link 10 million people click on that link what does that look like from a bandwidth perspective and is your server company going to charge you out the wazoo when something like that happens so those are the kind of things I would look at. Um, the nice thing about hosting anything on a virtual private server as opposed to doing it on bare metal or on your own system is that you have the opportunity of increasing the server specifications at any time. So when you run out of disk space, you can start with a $5 uh, D DigitalOcean server. And when you exhaust the storage capacity of that $5 DigitalOcean server, you can log back in. And scale up and you start maybe with a 25 gigabyte disk, you can change to a 50 gigabyte disk and simply by rebooting the server, that space is now available to you. Uh, and you can do that all the way up to a few hundred gigs on DigitalOcean. And then on, on top of that, you can add things like block storage, which will tie a separate storage system into your droplet, or you can tie it to things like AWS. Um, as far as actually setting up PeerTube, PeerTube has a, a, a really great documentation on how to do that docs.joinpeertube.org uh, and as part of that um, not only do they walk you through setting up a peer tube instance they also have the entire api for activity pub broken down the short short version uh, charlie is this that video video metadata are shared as activities for inner server communication so essentially what's happening here is that there's a database on each peer tube server and each database on the peer tube server keeps track of the content that exists on that server and keeps track of the tags and metadata and title and those sorts of things that information is then synced around to other peer tube servers and so Comments, uh, user interaction, um, all, all of those things are, 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 are textual links that allow you to identify what video you might want to, to view from across a different server. And so this is what allows, uh, people that, let's say you have one group A and group A is very passionate about Linux and open source content. And so they set up a peer tube server and there's a bunch of Linux and open source content on there and group B, is really passionate about cats. And so they have cat videos like nobody's business, right? Left, right. And you have group C and maybe group C is about knitting. And so they have a bunch of knitting videos. What activity pub allows and what the federation, what federation in general allows 
is for users on any of those three servers to see the content of any of the other servers. And so it allows communities to to spring up around a given topic, but it allows those videos to be accessible uh, from any from any machine on that Fediverse. Uh, and so this is one of the things that I I think is is increasingly valuable in a world of censorship, in a world of cancel culture, in a world of I don't want you to be able to say this thing or shouldn't be able to say this thing. This kind of technology is more important than ever. Uh, the good news is setting up a peer tube server has never been easier. And so you can get started with that. Um, again, docs.joinpeertube.org. I'll add this, though. You'll want to be prepared to if you're going to invite other people to participate in that infrastructure. Um, one of the things that I have uh, that I have learned in, in being in the open source community, a lot of times there's a lot of great ideas and a lot of people start out with the best of intentions to start a service or put a thing up, gets a pitch, bunch of people on it. Then there are some problems and they quickly realize that they don't have the resources, time, man, money, whatever it is to continue to perfect that platform or that service. And so then it goes away. And so uh, if you're going to set up a peer tube instance and you're going to invite other people to post content or, or, or be involved in that, just make sure that you set aside the requisite amount of time to understand how to set it up, understand how to troubleshoot it when something goes wrong, understand how to back up that content, and then have a plan for expansion if, if your instance grows and kind of takes off. As far as setting up uh, DNS and SSL. Uh, when you get to the point that after your peer tube server is, is up and running, you may decide that you want to set up things like DNS and, S DNS and SSL. DNS is essentially a phone book for the internet. It allows you to look up the IP address of another computer. Um, the, the easiest way to get started with, with stuff like that, you can go one of two routes. If you don't mind using your registrar's uh, DNS, uh, you can go over to something like registerforless.com or GoDaddy, and you can register the domain that you want to use. And inside of there, you can use their name servers and just add your IP addresses as A records. So you might have, uh, if that's the only thing that this URL, let's say myurl.com is the only thing it's hosting as a peer tube instance, then you then there's no problem in just forwarding uh, the root domain to setting the root domain to resolve to the IP address of your peer tube server. But in the instance that maybe you want to build a, an entire infrastructure around it, you might have videos.mydomain.com or stream.mydomain.com or peertube.mydomain.com. And all of those would require creating an additional A record, which will then allow you to map a, um, a name to your to that particular IP address so people don't have to remember it. And then as far as setting up SSL, uh, again, two paths you can go down. One is you can go the way of buying an actual SSL from your registrar. The other way is to just use Let's Encrypt. And the latter is what I would do by far because, first of all, it allows you to renew every 30 days and you're not it's not going to cost you anything. Second of all, I genuinely believe uh, there is value in supporting the Let's Encrypt infrastructure so that people get used to seeing that as a um, as a CA so that people become familiar with Let's Encrypt so that it becomes standard and adopted and all of those things. And I, and I, I, I don't really see a huge benefit into purchasing a CA elsewhere unless 
you're trying to do some very deep organization level verification for a domain. If you're trying to prove to your customers you who are who you really say you are, then maybe there's there's some merit in there. But for the most part, I would just stick with Let's Encrypt. Again, 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Calls go to the front of the line. John from California. You're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hey, how you doing, Noah? I've called before. Uh, I asked you a question before, and I wanted to ask you another question. But this time, it's troubleshooting. Okay. So I set up, I set up a Raspberry Pi. I, of course, it runs Linux, of course, and I set up a service to run on it, SyncThing, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, it's an alternative to C file, and it was running fine. And then after a while, the it would just, the Raspberry Pi would quote unquote freeze. I couldn't SSH into it. You look at the Raspberry Pi itself, and the red and the green light are on. The green light usually means it's trying to read the SD card or something, and the green light is just always on. So then I power rebooted it, unplugged it, replugged it back in. It would come back online. I'd SSH into it, looks fine, and then a little while later, it'd go back into that frozen state again. <laughs> I can't figure out why. So there are two primary things that I I jump to when it comes to troubleshooting Raspberry Pis. The first, which gets me, I'd say, 75% of the time I can fix it by looking into the power supply. Um, Raspberry Pis are some of the most finicky devices I've ever used as it relates to power supplies. And so I've had it to where I have a power supply. It works fine on four Raspberry Pis, and then I'll plug it into a fifth one. And it just won't like those two just don't get along. Uh, and then it, it has it exhibits all sorts of strange behavior. Second thing I've seen right off the bat that you might try is using a different SD card. I've had various I've had various lucks with various different brands, but I've also had it to where if especially if it's heavily used or it has been heavily used in the past. Sometimes I'll have a failure of an SD card and just swapping it uh resolves that have you tried uh have you tried changing out any of the hardware or has it uh, been a pretty consistent hardware setup since you've started with the issue uh it's been pretty consistent i brought the so i have like six raspberry pies and uh i got the package from they're called canicate which they sell like the pie yeah. and the power supply together mm-hmm. and they also sold the sd card together so I haven't changed out any of the hardware. I thought about changing the SD card. To, maybe it's just a bad SD card. Maybe I overwrote to it or something, too much data or something. Which this this all started happening after I had written a huge multi-gigabyte file to the SD card. So I'm thinking maybe I overdid the SD card. I have an external hard drive attached okay. to it, which I should have written to directly anyways, but I didn't. So anyways, I'll try a new SD card. If that doesn't fix the issue, then... I'll try the power source thing. Yeah, yeah, give that a shot. And do me a favor, give me a call back. Let me know how that works out. I would be interested. It uh, Raspberry Pis are one of the coolest things uh, to, to, to ever come out because it allows you to do so many of these cool things. Um, the problem, of course, is because it was originally designed as a device to teach kids about computing, oftentimes uh, there, are, there are some shortcomings with it when it comes to a production environment. Uh, Sloth in the chat room says, was the SD card full? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's another great thing to check. I, I, again, my, I had a, I had a guy, we hired him as a technician and he came in the first day and he's working on a couple of things 
And I, we sat him down for, uh, for a troubleshooting issue. And I, we handed him a machine and we said, uh, this computer isn't working. And so he goes through and about 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, he comes back and he goes, well, I've concluded that it's the motherboard. And I said, how, how did you come to that conclusion? And he says, well, I pulled the video card out and that wasn't the problem. And I pulled the, uh, you know, audio card out and that wasn't the problem. I pulled the RAM out. That wasn't the problem. Hard disk out. That wasn't the problem. CPU out. That wasn't the problem. The only thing left uh, is the motherboard. And I said, well, have you swapped the motherboard? Have you tried a different motherboard from a no machine? No. Well, why don't we try that? Turns out it wasn't the motherboard. It was the power supply. And so uh, part of troubleshooting and the, actually really the thing I like about it is when you're digging into a problem, it becomes a function of, okay, one of these things is not like the other. How, let's find where the difference is. Let's find where the disconnect is. And so in a Raspberry Pi situation, there's really only so many things that you can swap. It's essentially, it's the SD card, the power supply, and the Raspberry Pi. Those are the three things that make it work. RAM RAM, and uh, processor and all those things are all built into the board. Um, so I would first try swapping those two. And then if that doesn't work, uh, then give me a call back or give me a call back and let me know. If it did work, that would be interesting too. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Our third email comes in from Hank. Hank says, hi, Noah. First of all, thanks for all of the interesting, informative shows. I've enjoyed listening to you since you were a part of JB and have continued since. In a recent show, you had a security expert who claimed that SolarWinds lost control of their signing key, and you repeated that claim in the most recent podcast. That doesn't seem to square with the information I've gotten. Uh, and with, from a few minutes of research this morning, and then he links to uh, CrowdStrike. He says the technique used for the compromise was clever to the point of being diabolical. The perpetrators compromised a build server and added their code that would inject the back door into the product as it was being built before it was signed. The benefits are that the usual source of truth, the source of code SolarWinds project, is not tampered with. The compiled binaries are signed and distributed in the normal manner by SolarWinds, and there's no need to inject compromised binaries back into the stream post-signing. I'm curious what your security guy got his information. So what I would tell you, I'm, I'm guessing you're referring to Bo Weaver, and, and what I would tell you is, uh, I can't speak for Bo. I can speak for myself. Um, I did not mean to imply that the signing key left the building and fell into the hands of attackers and was then used. Um, when the, we covered the story when it first came out, uh, and essentially at that time, all that was known was that it was a legitimate signed package that had come out later on. A lot of the information of exactly how the attackers uh, pulled off this attack um, came out. Uh, so I appreciate you pointing it out. You're right. Sunspot is uh, is stellar particle malware, which was used to insert the sunburst backdoor into the software builds of SolarWind, uh, the Orion IT management product. Sunspot then monitored the running processes for those involved in the compilation of the Orion product and replaced one of the source filters to include the sunburst backdoor. The, the, the thing that is why I brought this up last episode or the episode before uh, and and what I was getting at was that this attack is almost impossible to defend against, was almost impossible to defend against. And one of the issues that I have is that I keep seeing in comments and in messages and in feedback and so on and so forth, well, this is why we have to use open source. Now, listen, I agree with that in premise. We should be using open source. We should be using audited code. We should have the ability to look under the hood and find out if the code is doing what we act, what they claim it's doing. But in this particular instance, that wouldn't have helped. 
because it wasn't the code that was problematic. It wasn't the fact that it was proprietary that it was problematic. It's that an attacker was so deep into the system and had such control and leveraging of the of their build infrastructure that there was no way to know that these attackers even existed, much less thwart the attack. And had it not been for a security researcher that found this on his network and said, hey, this doesn't look right. And then report and then, you know, everything kind of blew up from there. Uh, we may never they may have never known. It was a very, very detailed, deep attack. And it is terrifying. And you're right. It is to the point of being almost diabolical. You can send your questions in to live at asknoahshow.com. We have a new way of doing the feedback. Uh, Steve Ovens, our, uh, one of our associate producers, goes through the email and he organizes um, questions and topics and ideas in, so, so that we can form main sections of the show to try to give you better information. For that to work, you have to write in. Live at asknoahshow.com. We'd appreciate hearing from you. A question from our Matrix room. Our chat room is live on Matrix. You can join by going to geeklab.ninja in your web browser. It will just load right there in the web browser. And you can sign in, ask a question, post a question, read the discussion, so on and so forth. Or you can join us by going to, if you have Matrix, by going to poundgeeklab colon linuxdelta.com. Warped in the chat room writes in and says, Noah, the guy at my church told me today that he's looking at some 6K cameras so he can select an area and not lose any resolution. Go with a variety of lenses, etc. I thought PTZ would give him more options for wedding and other use since they are low key and don't allow videograph videographers to run wild. My idea is camera placement are two PTZ cameras on the sides, about 30 feet from the pulpit lectern, two lipstick cams aiming at the back for a wedding and a ceiling cam aimed for the choir at the balcony, maybe with a zoom lens. A PTZ at the back about 30 to 40 feet back from the PTZ cams. Some kind of remote buttons to switch the cams if the pastor or organist are the only ones running it. They've already used OBS, but they had camera issues. I'm looking for camera recommendations. He he does want a quality image, but I think 1080p is fine for now. He asked if I knew what SDI was, given the distances, maybe 100 feet or so. Some of the cables sound coming from the wireless mics, looking for some ideas. And yes, I know interfaces, Ethernet, HDMI, and SDI. I prefer domed cameras to minimize distractions from movement, but that's just my preference. So we'll go in order here. Um, If you're looking for a PTZ camera, a dome PTZ camera um, that has 1080p resolution um, and will work very well for you, I highly recommend the Axis P6555. And um, this is a very, very nice camera. Now, mind you, Axis is designed as a network security camera. It's a 4.3 to 138 millimeter lens, which is the focal focal length. So it'll determine how wide uh, the image is or how narrow the image is. Um, and uh, it costs all, just under two grand. Uh, and so it's a CMOS sensor. And it's a, it's a, I believe it's a half inch CMOS sensor that's in there. So it's going to deliver a, a very, very good, uh, a very good image. In addition, though, uh, again, this is really meant more towards security. So if you are, if you're, if your back is against the wall and you need something that you can more or less automate, you could certainly purchase a Axis P60 or 5655 and you could pair it with something like a Stream Deck. If you've not seen the Stream Deck, it is a fantastic little device. It's made by a company called Elgato, 
and the Stream Deck is 169 bucks, and it's essentially an LCD screen with buttons laid over the LCD screen, so you can configure the LCD screen to show you. Uh, you can relabel or this or put images underneath each of the transparent buttons, so you can customize what they all look like. Has been an absolutely fantastic tool for being able to do things like switch in OBS. Um, switch camera inputs, send, uh, send, com- send commands to other different automation devices, um, and can run on a Raspberry Pi. So the, the Stream Deck itself is just a little USB deal. Um, but they have software that can, can run off of a Raspberry Pi and power one of these. And so for doing the switching, especially in your scenario where you say, if the pastor or organist are the only ones running it, well, that's really fantastic because now you can have one of these devices sitting wherever they are and they can switch between the camera shots. You could also, in theory, uh, have the different PTZ coordinates send to the access camera, depending on what button you push and switch the different camera inputs in OBS all from the Streamlink, uh, Stream Deck, excuse me. So that's kind of how I would approach that if, if I, if I was actually going off of your, um, off of your suggestion of using like a PTZ camera. Now, if a church came to us at Alta Speed Technologies and said, Hey, we're looking to record, stream, whatever our church service and we need a camera to do so, uh, would we be recommending an access security camera? Probably not. Um, I tend to look at Canon uh, when I'm looking for professional cameras. Uh, Canon, ha- they they have a tremendously fantastic image sensor that just produces a really nice, clean image. Uh, additionally, they're meant for doing this kinds of things, right? And so this is why your guy was asking you about SDI. It becomes very, very expensive and very, very difficult to use consumer-grade cables and consumer-grade connectors uh, for trying to get professional stuff connected. Because, you know, if you want to run a feed of 100 feet or so or 200 feet, it becomes very difficult to do that with HDMI. So there's a couple workarounds that you can do. You can use things like HDMI balance. So essentially you're running Cat6 cable and then you're putting, uh, cat, you know, HDMI balance at each end. And that's going to cost you maybe a few hundred bucks uh, to do it that way. But the best way to feed an image source from a camera um, to a switching station or to a recorder is with SDI. SDI is essentially the professional version of HDMI. It's HDMI with a better connector and with less less complexity because they're not worried about copyright violation. They're not worried about preventing you from plugging one device into another and recording what comes off of one device onto another. All they're worried about is getting a proper a high quality video signal from one place to the other. And because it's used in a professional environment, instead of having uh, like the, uh, 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 I guess it would be a spade connector, a plug-in thing, uh, it has a twist-on BNC connector that's going to uh, provide a lot more security. It's also, when somebody trips over that cable, it's not going to take the the jack on the, on the the on the camera out, which is, of course, a preference. The, the the biggest thing, though, is you can use regular RG6 quad-shielded uh, coax cable, and you can just put BNC ends on them, and there you have made an SDI cable. So what would might cost a few hundred dollars to get all of that set up with HDMI, you'll be able to do for just a few, literally under 20 bucks, uh, with, a, with, with a roll of RG6 and, and some BNC ends. And so I would encourage you to look at Canon's lineup on BNH Photo and Video. If you if you decide to go further that route, or if that sounds like something you'd be open to, just write me back, and I'll um can pick out some recommendations for you. 
But that's kind of the direction I would go. Again, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. That's how you put your voice at the front of the program. Our pick of the week this week is Snipe IT. Snipe IT is open source software, transparency, security, and oversight at the heart of everything they do. No vendor, lock-in, ever. Snipe IT is inventory for IT. But this is inventory for IT on a whole different level. For the past, I'd say maybe year and a half, we've been looking at, at a very serious inventory system where we're going to go from kind of, uh, kind of, you know, we keep track of stuff, but it's not, not to the extent that we would like to. We would like everything that we order to be scanned in. We would like, you know, minimum quantities when it gets down to a certain level. Hey, we're down to, you know, five or 10 access points, better order another batch in those kinds of things. We would like to be able to do those things, but you know, at Alta Speed, if we're going to do something, if it's not open source, then it's just a placeholder, not really interested in spending a lot of time putting inventory in and building a system uh, for a placeholder. And so I uh, we started looking at open source solutions, self-hosted open source solutions, self-hosted open source solutions that were fantastic, self-hosted solutions that were fantastic and also allowed us the ability to start with a hosted uh, platform. We just pay a monthly fee to get an idea of how the platform works before we fully dig in. Well, Snipe IT checks every one of those boxes. They have a cloud platform that you can use with 99.99% SLA uptime guaranteed, servers and data centers across the globe for reliability and speed, and they have a full in-house support team that's ready to answer technical questions that customers have, to include when we wrote into them and said, hey, if we sign up with your service and start using your IT and then, or Snipe IT and then really like it and want to move it to a self-hosted edition, will you help us do that? And they went, yes, absolutely. It's super easy. You just export here and you import there. Very simple. And so they have a uh, they have a very intuitive uh, developer JSON REST API. And so what we're hoping to do with Snipe IT is this. We're hoping that we're able to tie it to OS ticket. We're hoping that we're we are already in the process of tying it into matrix. And so what that will allow us to do is make modifications to our inventory system either from the ticket system or from our chat. Uh, we have a control thing inside of Matrix, and so we'd be able to do it from the control channel in Matrix. All of those make for a much better experience and an infrastructure worth investing into. Now I'm actually excited to scan all of our stuff into inventory. So is everybody else around here. It's kind of funny. Um, it's mobile-friendly. They help uh, to, so you can update assets on the go. Now get this. The ability to check in or out inventory in the inventory system. So it's one thing to just say, here's all the things we bought, and then you we quote-unquote requisition stuff for uh, internal use, or we it, it, it got sold, and so we market, you know, sold or out of inventory. How about stuff that we own that we want to keep owning because we're going to continue to own it because it's still ours, but it's checked out to an employee? And sometimes it's checked out to an employee for the entire duration that they're here. When they get a laptop, they, they come in, somebody signs up to, we hire somebody to work at AltaSpeed, we send them a phone and a laptop, and here you go. And they keep the Anagubi key, and they keep that stuff the entire duration that they're employed. Other things, like let's say the IP security camera install kits, and we were talking about IP cameras a little before, we combine all of the tools that are necessary to do a given task into a Go kit. And so, for example, we send somebody out to go do an access point install. You know, we don't send them out and then they get out there and they go, oh, I don't have an, I don't have a screwdriver. I can't test this cable. I can't see if voltage is here. I can't, no, all that stuff is there. The sheetrock saw that all the things that you would need to install or maintain or troubleshoot an access point is in the wireless access point deployment kit. And so they just take that one 
Pelican fifteen ten, and it has all of the tools that they need inside of there. And then when they're done, they 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 bring them back. Snipe IT is going to not only do they support the kit, so not only do they support, hey, here is the you know IP security camera installation kit, but inside of there it will track. Hey, here's the fourteen hundred dollar device that allows us to see. Uh, video of that particular IP camera coming through on, on this, on this device. Not only does it know that that particular device is in there and the serial number and the MAC address and all that stuff, but it knows that that's part of the kit called IP security installations. And so that kit can be checked out and all of the devices in it then go to whatever employee checked that device out. If you're not using predefined kits, if you run, just a side note, if you, if you have a business or you, or even just like being organized, compartmentalizing and 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 making into a modular fashion all of the different technical components that we need to troubleshoot and play with technology is a godsend it just it 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 fundamentally makes mixing and matching technology and tools uh a a time saver and so on top of all that they have a great admin dashboard and so at a glance you can see recent activity so what devices were checked in and out uh when when a new stock uh, shipment arrives what assets are out uh, how much money we have tied up in 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 one thing or the other accessories consumables this is another thing that always drives me nuts zip ties most inventory systems are not real hip to the idea that zip ties are something that we buy and then they go out and we don't track like we use 13 zip ties at this particular client. It's just kind of a thing that comes in and flows through the business. And we are we're nickel and dime people on that, right? We just, everybody has some zip ties with them. And when we need them, we use them. And when you go to Chris Fisher's house, you use lots of them. Um, Snipe IT understands that. They also understand that you as an IT company have software licenses. Again, this has been a major pain for us when we were looking at other inventory systems because they don't understand the concept that I would buy a thing and that thing, even though it's technically on our possession and even though it technically resides in our rack and is filed, doesn't belong to us. Somebody else paid for that, but we have to keep track of it because we're keeping track of their license keys for them. They buy 50 copies of Windows 10. It's all running on a VM server. I, we could drop them off at the client, but then they'd probably lose them. And the next time that they want us to redeploy one of their, their client workstations, and we're going to c- come asking for that Windows 10 key, and they're not going to be thrilled when we tell them it's another 200 bucks when they lost it. And so just being able to have all of that and track all of that for our clients and then having all of that information in an electronic system, I just get so excited thinking about it. So the software is called Snipe IT. You can learn more. Uh, but is it snipeit.com? I can't believe I don't have the URL in here. Um, but it is an inventory system, open source asset management system. The, it is snipeitapp.com, excuse me. And, uh, and, and finally, if, even if you're not an IT company, even if you just have an IT department, quite honestly, the software is probably more designed for you than it was for me. It just fits my use case fairly well. Um, but the idea is you can have a thousand laptops and you can keep track of which laptop is checked out to which person, so on and so forth. Snipeitapp.com. Our gadget of the week this week is the Cutie Pie. You can learn more at cutiepie.io. That's C-U-T-I-E-P-I dot I-O. Cutie Pie is a Raspberry Pi 4 tablet that turns your project into an untethered adventure. Build, create, Wherever an idea strikes you, no wires, no external power, no strings attached. This device is powered by an 8-inch multi-touch screen. They include a 5,000 milliamp battery and the Raspberry Pi Compute Module 4. So this is everything you need to get started with a Raspberry Pi. Now, the built-in power management means that the power level 
And reading features can ease your anxiety around battery life. There, nothing could be more frustrating than trying to go to a Raspberry Pi and working off a battery and then just having it die suddenly because it wasn't really designed to be a mobile device. The Cutie Pie Shell is their mobile UI powered by the open source QT framework, and it turns any Raspberry Pi OS into a functional tablet UI while maintaining compatibility with all of the programs that you're going to want to run on a Raspberry Pi. It has the most basic functions covered from typing up a command in the terminal to connecting to a Wi-Fi hotspot to logging onto the web. Now, the best th- part about this, pre-orders start at $200. The estimated delivery is July of 2021. For $200, you're going to get a BCM2711 quad-core Cortex-A72 ARM V8 64-bit processor at 1.5 gigahertz, the Raspberry Pi compute module, uh, a wireless two gigabyte light, uh, a just eight inch IPS display at 1280 by 800. Again, that 5,000 milliamp battery. It has Wi-Fi at 2.4 gigahertz, five gigahertz, 802.11 B, G, N, and AC. It supports Bluetooth 5.0 and a rear facing camera, five megapixels at 1080p. Uh, additionally, you're going to get one USB type A, one USB type C for charging and on the go. Love that. One micro HDMI and one micro SD slot. So when I came across this, I got, I got excited and I'm going to pre-order one. I'm going to, I'm going to get one. Is it going to take on the iPad pro? Do I expect it to take on the iPad pro? Probably not. But if you want to play with raspberry Pi projects, this is a very easy way to do that. I struggle a little bit sometimes where my son or my daughter will ask me, uh, to, to do something or how to do something. And the only answer I can really give him is, well, you're going to have to go grab a monitor and get this and you'll have to spin this up on a Pi. This allows him to do that in an entirely different way because you just hand the device, you plug it in, it works like every other toy. Additionally, I, I'm, I'm constantly on the search for like a companion device. I'm really interested in having a computer that I can trust and put information on, but that's much smaller than a laptop and I can just carry it with me. And so that's what I'm excited about. And that's why this project excites me. The price also excites me because 200 bucks, that's just, that's really fantastic. That's, that's Pine 64 level. Awesome. Giorgio joins us from Grand Forks. Hey, Giorgio, welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah, it's good to talk to you again. Same. Hey, a couple of weeks ago, uh, somebody had called in asking about an, a good application to use for uh, creating a slideshow. And I had a follow-up question for that. Where does one find good like, background music for slideshows? And can I use commercial music, or is that not good? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the um, so the, the way that it kind of breaks down is this. If you're making money off of the thing that you're doing, so for example, if you charge, uh, if you have a room and, you, char- and you, you have 25 of your friends over to watch a movie, that's perfectly fine. If you charge your friends $5 to come over and watch a movie, that's no longer okay. Um, and so the, and, and music gets a little more dicey because when it goes to publishing on the internet, if you just put something on the internet and it's a personal slideshow, you're probably not going to get any flack. If you put that on YouTube, YouTube automatically assumes that you want to monetize or will monetize or will gain enough, uh, you know, viewers to monetize or whatever they, whatever the rationale is. And so they will flag that content. In fact, the first, I don't know, 50 episodes, 60 episodes of the show aired with a piece of music that I legally purchased from the owner, but could not get YouTube's Python script thing that, that, that identifies it to stop flagging it. And so eventually I just, I literally hired a musician and said, write me something from scratch. And that's the intro that I use now. 
Um, as far as where to get music, so there's a, that's a great question. There's a couple of great places to do that. Um, the, the, the first place, if you want, if you want a no cost place to get music is, uh, is a site called Incomptech. I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H. Incomptech. And, um, and the, and the guy who runs in Comptech has uh, a, a bunch of music that he gives away that he just puts up uh, for for free. And you can go and, and, and download as royalty free and you can just use it to your heart's content. Another place if you want to get. And, and so so the good news about that is it's free. There's a wide selection. Uh, he is a he's a very nice guy and it's great to support his site. So that, that would be my first recommendation. The problem is because it's free music, obviously, there are a lot of people that use his site and use his music. So if you wanted to move to something more uh, individualized or, or something a little bit more different, uh, you might check out square-peach.com, square-peach.com. Square-peach has also a bunch of royalty-free music, but one of the things I like about them is you can buy it per song, so you don't have to purchase a mem- membership or anything like that. And their unlimited use license means that every song you purchase uh, you can use an unlimited amount of time on an unlimited amount of projects for an unlimited amount of applications. There are no reuse fees, uh, just nothing. You purchase the music, they let you use it, end of things that you have to care about. And so you can put that behind your, your presentation and it would be perfectly fine. And then if you want the end all be all for, uh, for royalty free music, then I would check out audioblocks.com and audioblocks.com has probably the largest collection of royalty-free music and sound effects, and actually they have like video and photos and the whole nine yards, really. Um, so you could you can go that route, and and they're really fantastic to work with. The downside is that they are kind of expensive. It uh, it's twenty bucks a month or three hundred and sixty dollars a year. Um, you'll you'll be very hard pressed to not be able to find something unique that you're not seeing use in somewhere else or something that you don't like they can match almost any kind of mood you can sort and save they also produce uh, both waves and mp3s of all of their music and so um it's just a really great place to buy royalty free music so i would check out one of those three places uh you got the free option the low cost option and then the end all be all option was great. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, Proton VPN, an update has been blocked by Apple. Recently, the people of Myanmar have been fighting to preserve their human rights after the military deposed the democratically elected government and seized power on February 1st. Now, in the weeks following that, military forces have killed over 250 peaceful protesters and illegally detained over 2,500 people. On March 17th, the United Nations put out a call for people and said, we want you to collect and preserve documentary evidence of these crimes so that we can raise awareness and attention to it and respond to it. And to safely convey that information, they had recommended um, that people use signal or proton mail to report the evidence of wrongdoing. They suggested that because both signal and proton mail have a long established track history of respecting users, privacy and security. Proton mail is not the only Proton app being used, however, by these activists and protesters in Myanmar. Uh, for the past month, Myanmar military has forced the national telco companies to shut down the Internet or block access 
to social media sites, preventing the evidence from getting out. And so the people have turned to ProtonVPN to get around those internet blocks. And they want to be able to get accurate news. They want to be able to stay safe. They want to be able to, they want to, they want to report on how many people have been killed. Uh, in the days immediately after the coup, the signups for ProtonVPN spiked 250 times the previous average daily rate. And on that same day, the UN recommended that Proton apps, Apple suddenly rejected their updates to ProtonVPN in the iOS app. And those updates include security enhancements that were specifically designed to improve the safeguards against accounts being taken over and, and, and attempts that could compromise privacy. Now, Apple says it blocked the app because of the app's description in which Proton identifies the Proton VPN app as a tool to, quote, challenge governments and bring online freedom to people around the world. Now, you have to stop right there and just say, what is wrong with that description? The blog article on Proton's site goes so far as to say, quote, Apple's actions are hypocritical in that Apple has no problem challenging governments when its own financial self-interest is on the line. So, for example, avoiding EU taxes, evading antitrust charges. However, when Proton does it for human rights reasons, suddenly it's against Apple's policy. Quote, unfortunately, this is not an isolated incident with Apple, but part of a longstanding corporate policy to put profits ahead of human rights. During the Hong Kong protests last year, when Proton VPN became the most downloaded app in Hong Kong, Apple similarly forced self-censor. In 2019, it removed the HKMap.Live and Quartz app, which Hong Kong residents used to stay informed about the protests from its app store after it received pressure from China. So I bring this story up for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you have an iOS device, complain about this. Complain about Apple, the fact that you're not receiving the latest updates from Proton. They're not getting to you. That's a problem. Secondly, as Signal and Proton and others establish themselves as a standard, you notice that the UN, there's a consensus around what applications are used when you want to achieve a specific task. And you notice that that is almost totally irrelevant of any particular government or any particular corporation or anything like that. As Proton and Signal continue to establish themselves as those go-to standards for privacy and security, Google and Apple are going to have to make some decisions. They're going to have to make a decision to either support that standard or get out of the way for others who will. So the next time we have a conversation about Apple and its value on privacy and security, then I would really love for this to be a part of the conversation. I would really love for this to be a discussion point when it really matters, when somebody's life is actually on the line and Apple has an opportunity to stand up from a government, which by the way, isn't even the government of the country that they're in. It's not like it's not like they really have the uh, the, the ability to, to, to place pressure on Apple. I, I just, I, you know, I call it as I see it. It seems ridiculous that there's all this talk on the Internet of how privacy and, and privacy conscious and privacy respecting Apple is. And yet they would not push updates to an app, which, by the way, so far as I know, the description in Proton VPN has been the same since the day they launched. It's not like this is something new. It's just now it's very, very applicable. In fact, I think in this uh, in his blog post somewhere there, Andy actually says something along the lines of Apple could not have worse timing uh, with this. And then the last reason is this. You can call it confirmation bias. You call it whatever you want. But this is the reason why I, I get so passionate and so excited about decentralized infrastructure and new mobile operating system, new mobile devices. Whether we like it or not, 
the world is changing and we are moving from computers to mobile devices. And uh, we don't I don't always get a chance to cover all of the stories that come in. Um, but there there was a story a few weeks ago where Las Vegas Police Department up 200 percent using Cellbrite to duplicate people's phones and break in and go through and read all of their stuff. That only exists because everybody has flocked to one of two devices, an Android device or an iOS device. And both of those devices, despite what the companies tell you, are controlled by those companies. And ultimately, their profit lines and their corporate interests are what matters in how they make those decisions. But that is not the case with Pine64. That's not the case with Plasma Mobile. That's not the case with Manjaro Arm. Uh, that's not the case with Mobian OS. All of those entities exist to make products for entirely different reasons, many of whom are very dedicated to security and privacy. And so that's fine. This time, you're not going to get those updates coming down to iOS for a little bit until Proton gets this worked out with iOS. But eventually, it's going to get to a point where it's going to be cheaper to go get $200 Pine phones or whatever the whatever the mainstream adoption is, because I'm not necessarily saying it'll be a Pine phone. But at some point, those kinds of operating systems and those kinds of options will become more feasible. And whether it's something like Graphite OS, which is a, which is a, a hardened Android alternative that is primarily designed to be put on any phone and, or phone manufacturers, more phone manufacturers like Sony start coming out with the Sony open, uh, open devices initiative that basically says, Hey, we're going to make a bunch of really nice phones and you can load whatever operating system you want. Because at the end of the day at Sony, all we want to do is sell phones. We could care less what operating system it runs on as those kinds of decisions are made and those kinds of realities are introduced to us, people are going to make different decisions. I'm confident of it. And places like Proton VPN, places like Signal, uh, I would include Matrix in that, uh, are all going to be sitting in a, in a great spot because they conform to open standards, because the code is out in the open, it's well understood. Everybody wants it to work. Everybody's willing to try to make it work. And there would be no reason to artificially hold back an update. That's the kind of stuff that Apple and Google can get away with today. And I, I sincerely hope in the upcoming future that that landscape changes, that that's not a thing that they have the opportunity to do anymore. Uh, a brief rundown on Fedora 34 beta. It's coming out this week. Uh, the ButterFS transparent compression after Fedora 33 had made ButterFS the default file system uh, for desktop variants. Fedora Linux 34 beta enables transparent compression for more disk space and this will increase the lifespan of flash-based media by reducing the write amplification for solid state disks this compression improves the read and write performance for larger files with the potential to add significant time efficiency into workflows with the foundation for future enhancements we aim to continue adding these capabilities in future versions additionally they're going to be replacing Pulse Audio with Pipewire. And so desktop audio is going to transition from Pulse Audio to Pipewire, and that's going to allow uh, mix and management of audio streams. It also uh, allows you to do similar workflows with video, which is very, very exciting. Um, this is all being shipped in flat packs. The integration of Pipewire also creates space for not just one audio interface infrastructure, but to serve both the desktop and the professional use cases for mixing. So as we kind of reevaluate how we're going to do uh, our studio build, um, as we as we redo stuff in here, uh, Fedora Workstation is 
kind of the top contender right now, not in short part due to Pipewire. And then Fedora 34 Workstation Beta includes GNOME 40, which is, of course, the newest release of the GNOME desktop environment. GNOME 40 represents a significant rewrite and brings user experience and enhancement to the GNOME shell overview. It changes features like search, windows, workspaces, applications to be more uh, spatially coherent. GNOME shell will also start in the overview after the login. Hey, thanks for joining us. The music in my ears means we're out of time. If you're looking for more open source content, lead producer of this show, JT Pennington, has a new episode of Open Source Voices out with Mad Dog Hall. Make sure to check that out. We'll be back next Tuesday, uh, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. One last thing I want to mention, we are going to be doing a networking segment. I'm going to bring Steve Ovens on. We've gotten a lot of questions and the feedback about network. That's going to happen on April 6th. So make sure to join us for that segment. Send your questions in ahead of time. We'll see you next week.